0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcast are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you, but i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 32 in our series on world history. In the last podcast, we reviewed the impact of the printing press on the Protestant Reformation. We saw that that tool, that invention, had also spurred other individuals to raise their questions as well. We reviewed how the Roman Catholic Church, the Council of Trent, attempted to address the issues surrounding the Protestant Reformation. We saw and discussed the rise of new religious orders, the Jesuits, as well as the Vincentians and the Augustinians even before that. And then finally, we concluded with the Inquisition. In today's podcast, we're going to be reviewing the first of two major events that are going to impact human civilization irrevocably going forward. The first is going to be what becomes known as the Thirty Years' War. And unlike the Hundred Years' War, where the historians uh, didn't quite get their math correct because it was a 116-year war, the Thirty Years' War really did last 30 years, 1618 to 1648. However, what we're going to see is that this outline that we'll be discussing or this podcast This is where we see a turning point, not only in European and Western history, but also in how the globe will become smaller in so many ways and larger in others. So first off, before we dive into the 30 Years War, let's take a brief review of the political analysis of European countries between the years 1450 and 1648. It's kind of an oddball number of years isn't it 1450 to 1648 why not just round it up and make it 1650 and even 200 years well you see we historians are not easy going people in all times especially when we try to categorize our various eras in world or american history the fact of the matter is 1648 is arguably or was arguably the most important year politically, between the year 1000 AD and 1999, to the point that World History 1, that once we conclude the Thirty Years' War, if you've listened to these podcasts from the very first one where I discuss early humans all the way till now, you will have been exposed to and listened and thought about concepts in what any World History 1 course would cover. Whether that, regardless of the numbers, whether it's History 1010 or History 101, that's World History 1. 1648 is the breaking point, it's the point between World History 1 and 2. To give you an idea how important this year is, at a conference outside of Chicago, I was talking to a couple of other historians, and they asked what my area of interest was, and I said Cold War slash American history. And they asked me for my areas of expertise. I said military history and the American presidency. I said, how about you? And they both said, oh, we're we're world historians. And then I just simply asked them, pre or post. Anybody outside of the world of history listening to that wouldn't understand the question, pre or post or post? The woman said pre, and the man said post. And they understood my question and they knew what I meant. What was your area of expertise in European and Western civilization? Pre 1648 or post 1648? And they understood it because of the importance of that year. So let's begin with some overarching issues here in international relations which is going to eventually culminate into that momentous year of 1648. However, it will be preceded by the beginning of a very violent war that will begin in 1618 and last again, as I mentioned earlier, for 30 years, hence the term or title, 30 Years War. So international relations, simply put, neighbors, countries, either getting along or not getting along with one another. International relations, how countries behave with one another, would be dominated by two themes, starting in the 1450s through to 1648. The first is, oh, you never would have guessed this, religious issues. Sure. Yeah, why not? We haven't talked about religion in how many podcasts And oh, yeah, the last one, right? Yeah, religion clearly dominates world thinking, To the point, again, that we're going to see how it's going to become even more violent in this podcast. What we're looking at specifically, though, why religious issues is still a dominant theme, is because now of the rise of Protestant thinking. Before the Protestant Reformation, you either had your traditional Roman Catholic Christian thinking, or you had your Orthodox Christian thinking now there's another third there's a third player another player here that will be attracting people in in the millions and that again is going to give us a third group of thinkers in this case protestants and developing into new religions which of course is going to add friction with its parent church the roman catholic church what we're also going to see and we've already preceded this discussion in our last podcast is reform within the catholic church And then finally, and unfortunately, what we're going to see, which is going to be the powder keg, the gas, and the matches that only need to be lit before everything explodes, are the political leaders that will either be backing Catholicism or Protestantism. And of course, don't forget the other major players, the Orthodox, the Muslims, and the Jews. So, yes, we have five major faiths that are crisscrossing a very small geographic region called Europe. So, that's the first major issue religion, the rise of Protestant thinking. Second, the reform within the Catholic Church. And third, political leaders backing either Catholicism or Protestant movements. The second major issue, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, is territorial expansion. The independent countries of Europe looking to stretch their arms and legs and attempting to plant their flags somewhere other than their own adjacent territories. And that's what we mean by territorial expansion, which is the second major theme. First off, let's look then at how And what I mean by religious issues becoming a dominant theme in international relations. The first of the major, if you want to go so far as to call this catastrophes, not to give away the end of the story, is that of Philip II of Spain. He was an ardent Roman Catholic that wanted to turn back the tide of Protestant movements started by Henry VIII in England. One way to do that would be diplomatically. But that's kind of boring, isn't it? A lot of endless years of talks and talks and talks. What if, Philip thought, if I could militarily invade that island nation, knowing that I'll be backed by Catholics who would then support my soldiers, my naval forces, in dominating England in order to be able to restore the predominant faith of Roman Catholicism. Secondly, winning England would cut off support for the Protestant movements in Europe. It would be just the beginning of Philip beginning to become what he looked at is arguably one of the greatest heroes in Roman Catholic Church history since the days of Charlemagne, some 788 years prior. While the thinking clearly was grandiose, there's no doubt Philip really had a heck of a plan out there. Absolutely. Except that there were two massive flaws in his plan. It was a plan that was great on parchment, but very poor in execution. First off, with Philip not able to communicate with English Catholics... He had no way of knowing whether he could actually count on their support or not. Invading the island nation from the beaches of southeastern England, carrying the Roman Catholic flags of Spain, doesn't necessarily mean he's going to win support in the snap of the fingers. Not at all. Because Catholic or not, the English will still look at this as an invasion, whether it's for religious purposes or not. And the more that England gets destroyed by the invading forces of Spain, the more Philip is going to turn the English Catholics off, and his hopes of being able to be unified with them will go down with the ships. The second major flaw that Philip had in his thinking is he planned to invade England through the English Channel. And i say, well, I guess, Chris, that kind of makes sense. My knowledge of geography, if Philip is going to travel north towards England, he's going to eventually go into the English Channel. Well, not necessarily. He could go through the Irish Sea, which is to the west of the island nation. He could also come in through, from the north through the North Sea. He's choosing to go the most direct, shortest route. Did he never read the works of the followers of Hannibal and Alexander the Great? that oftentimes your shortest way home is your longest way around. What I'm getting at is by Philip choosing the shortest route, he was giving England plenty of time for his fleet to be spotted and able to be defended and ultimately defeated as he reached the shores of England. But there's a second problem too with Philip's route. If you have a chance to pull up Google Maps or any world map and you look at all the water that covers the surface of the Earth, 70% of the Earth, as we know, is covered by water. It is said that the most turbulent, the most difficult waters to navigate is none other than the English Channel. And White said, wait a minute, the English Channel is so narrow, so short. How could that be such a dangerous body of water? because of what you just observed. It's short and it's narrow. Now, what you're not observing through a regular topographical map or a regular political map is what's going on beneath the surface of the water of the English Channel. If you could get a map that showed water temperatures of the bodies of water that's throughout the world, What you would see is that the northern part of the English Channel has significantly colder water than the southern part of the English Channel, which is being fed by the Gulf Current coming up from thousands of miles away through the coast of the United States, which at this point is not formed yet, but to the coast of North America. Well, what happens in North America, specifically out west, when a cold front hits a warm, humid front, generally we get some severe thunderstorms. Depending upon the temperature difference and the humidity levels of the atmosphere, it can spawn some of the most terrific storms called tornadoes. Well, what happens with atmosphere also applies to water. As those warm waters come in from the south, and begin to meet up with the cold waters of the North Sea coming through the channel. It's extremely turbulent waters. To top it off, it's a very narrow passageway, which also makes it appear as though that the English channel is almost like a hot tub with all of its jets on blowing in a variety of of directions. Mind you, the English train on these waters They've always trained on these waters. Therefore, any other body of water that they had to sail on, that they had to fight on, is a cakewalk compared to the English Channel. It's the exact opposite for Phillips forces heading north. They largely trained off the Bay of Biscay or off the Mediterranean coast. They have never had the experience to be able to see the size and the scope of how deadly the waters can be. Again, just like with other conflicts, I'm not going to specifically cover the invasion itself other than to say that it was a colossal failure. It's not that Philip's ships didn't reach the shore. They did, but they reached the shore largely as firewood and toothpicks of the ships that didn't go directly down to the bottom of the English Channel. You see, Philip sent these large warships and they, by a by large, laughed when they saw the English sending out these small, scrawny ships that were attempting to protect or defend the island nation. But in the English Channel, that's what you want, are smaller ships with a low draft so that the ships don't reach down too far into the water to be batted by the churning waters below the surface. To a certain extent, many English ships never even attacked the spanish ships because they more or less just circled the spanish ships watching them as they tried fruitlessly and helplessly to try to manage the sails the masts etc trying to keep their ships afloat much less try to fight so in some cases mother nature took care of many of the philip's ships sending them down to the bottom of the english channel in defense of england from here even though he had sailed on may 9th 1588 Again, it didn't last long. It was a colossal failure. And what I want to focus on here in our limited time are the consequences of the Armada. What it did by Philip losing his entire navy is, needless to say, it prevented him from ever using force again. Spain's reputation to say it was badly tarnished was an understatement. Because he pounded his chest that he was fighting in the name of God fighting on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church. Occasionally, a student will ask me, Professor, could this be counted almost as a crusade? Absolutely it could, even though it's generally not listed as one of the many of the crusades of Roman Catholic Europe. However, England, able to defend herself yet again, her stature raises to new heights. And because it was a Catholic movement and a Catholic initiative, defeated by Protestant forces, what do you think happened to the reputation of the early movements of Protestantism? It soared, it was reinforced, while Catholicism and the Roman Catholic Church took a significant beating. So that ended the religious rivalry for the latter half of the 1500s. It wouldn't take long, arguably just 30 years, ironically enough, for another religious conflict to break out again, again, which would retrospectively be known as the Thirty Years' War. But unlike the Spanish Armada of 1588, this land, country, that war, excuse me, is going to take far more, take place far more on land between various countries than it is over water. It will be fought between Protestants and Catholics throughout Europe who would be fighting for political domination of their own territories backed by the religion of their own choosing. That definition right there is rife with two different but related sources of conflict. Number one, political domination of their own territory. Says who? Any established, solidified country, much less the size of England, Spain, or France, is by and large going to take issue with these tiny little principalities that want to unite together and form a larger country. Smaller principalities are easier to dominate. They're easier to push around than a solidified country. So that part of the definition, again, is just rife with danger. The second part, choosing your own faith or religion, to the Roman Catholics, that's not going to happen. To the Protestants in England, under Anglicanism, the Anglican Church, that's not going to happen. And of course, the forces of the late Martin Luther under Lutheranism are also going to be fighting for their own individuality and their own religious independence. And I haven't even mentioned about a third group of religious thinkers, that is also rising up at this time. So, like the Armada, I'm not going to c- cover the conflict itself. There's plenty of great uh, books. Uh, specifically, the one by George Cohen, K-O-H-N, in his books, uh, his uh, one of his many books, but the one specifically I'm uh, referring to is the Dictionary of Wars, where you can get very concise coverage of these actual conflicts. The problem is is that George, in his book, doesn't have the the room to discuss the events leading up to, or more importantly, the dominoes that fall as a result of that war. And that's, again, what I'm going to be focusing on, too. First off, why does the, before we get to the uh, settling of the war, why does it last so long? The Thirty Years' War is arguably what is known as the first major long-lasting war of attrition. A war of attrition. When I bring this up in class, I will ask my students on more, uh, more often than not what a war of attrition is. And usually one or two students, if not more, will actually know and raise their hand and say, isn't that really where you know, country A versus country B, the army, the forces are fighting one another. And after the first year, B gets 10 miles into A's territory. In the next year, a pushes B back to the starting line, where the when the war started, and then A gets gains some uh, land into country B, and then B strengthens up because they're being pushed further into their own supply lines on home, having the home field advantage. They get the strength, the uh, the benefits, the advantage, and they push A back, and they get further into A's territory, and on and on because of that and while that's an accurate description of what a war of attrition is the massive myth that's attributed to a war of attrition is they tend to be the least deadly and it is argued that the exact opposite of true is true wars of attrition tend to be the most deadly the reason being is while on the surface when a student is rattling off that definition of a war of attrition, okay, so B gets into A's territory, A pushes back B, and they go back and forth. Okay, so really at the end of several years, if they're back at the starting point, not much has changed. (laughs) True, geographically. But how about humanly? How many thousands of soldiers were killed as B pushed into A's territory? How many thousands of soldiers in territory or country A are lost as they push B back to the starting line and then try to push back further? Wars of attrition are notoriously deadly. When we get to the 20th century, I'll ask students, especially in my American history classes where I haven't covered the 30 years war, that as we head into the 20th century, in order, what's the deadliest war? And they rightly say World War I, which is true, which will be eclipsed, of course, by World War II. World War I is going to see, on average, 5,000 people die a day, civilians and soldiers. World War II is going to look at about 7,000 soldiers a day. That is, again, per day, dead. So I begs the question, with the 30 Years War, as I ask my students without mentioning it, so if World War I becomes the deadliest war in history, what record did that break? What war did that displace from being the deadliest war, number one, to be put to second place? I have yet in my 20 years of teaching have a student answer to raise their hand and say, wouldn't that be the 30 Years War? Because that's the correct answer. That's how deadly this war becomes. So because of this war of attrition, when we get to the Treaty of Westphalia in October of 1648, the war was brought to a conclusion not because either side necessarily won, but it's rather because both sides realized they truly did not have the human capacity or the dollars to continue to push on to fight. As a result, these points came up and were signed by all parties of the Treaty of Westphalia in October of 1648. And because of these points, which I'll summarize quickly and uh, briefly, is why it became a major turning point, if not the most major turning point in European society. First off, it recognized the sovereign independence of all German principalities. Secondly, due to the number of newly independent principalities, it is argued that this brought to an end that notion of what we called the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire, which started again on Christmas Day when Charlemagne crowned himself with the blessing of the Roman Catholic Church, the first Holy Roman Emperor. As I said, if you're wondering, wait a minute, that's right, Chris, you mentioned that back in that podcast, but I really haven't heard you, you know, hammer on about that since, because as I said in that podcast, this is so much a misnomer, this titled the Holy Roman Empire, because again, ladies and gentlemen, there was nothing holy uh, about it. There was certainly nothing Roman about it. An empire? Not in the sense of what we once saw Alexander control, Hannibal attempt to control, what Rome did control. That's empire, not the loose federation that fell apart when Charlemagne died. The third point is that a country jumps uh, on the way of the world map called the Netherlands. They'll gain their independence. France and Sweden's reputation is greatly enhanced and the Roman Catholic Church influence is significantly reduced. There, that other third party of religious thinkers that was differentiating themselves from Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and even Lutheranism were the followers of John Calvin. And as a result of that, Calvinism joins Lutheranism as an authentic Protestant religion. So those are the central points that come out of the European and end up being reflected in a completely redrawn map of Europe. It was a war treaty, though, the Treaty of Westphalia, post and pre-Westphalia. When I was talking to those historians and I said pre or post, another way I could have phrased it was, are you pre-Westphalia or post-Westphalia? Again, unless you're a historian, you wouldn't understand the question. But that's how major this was. Yet sadly, it settled so little. A war treaty that truly influenced every human life on the European continent. Yet ultimately, as time would tell, it settled so little. So that's what brings us to the end of the Thirty Years' War, And between the Thirty Years' War and what was preceded that, the Spanish Armada, we saw in this podcast, therefore, why religious issues and religious wars was such a major influence in Western European thinking. So imagine yourself as a commoner living in England during the Armada, and maybe your children and grandchildren say, the heck with this in England, they cross the English Channel and they try to make a living for themselves in modern-day France or in the German principalities of the Netherlands, only to find that continent get plagued in war for three decades. Don't you think at some point, at some point those people The commoners, the John and Jane Doe, the you and I of society, don't you think at some point they might say, you know what, I've had it with war, I've had it with religion being shoved down my throat based on who happens to be king or queen. You know what, I want out of here, I don't want to go to England. The people in continental Europe say, the English say, I don't want to go to Europe because that's just as war-torn and bad. I want to go somewhere completely away from here. It's interesting that in the 1600s they think this, because a discovery about 130 years prior will make that dream for them become a reality which will begin in the next podcast with The Dawn of the Age of Exploration. Thank you for listening. Go to my website, ceconsola.com and email me with any questions or comments you might have, especially book recommendations. If you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review on whatever social media of your cho- choosing. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.